Go now to Wellington. It's time for our last midweek media watch of the year. Good evening, Colin. Hey, Karen. Let's start with the future of public broadcasting. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's always on the map, isn't it? But uh, yeah, Monday was the briefing to the incoming minister day, uh, the day the government published all those briefings to all those incoming ministers. Um, yeah, effectively, these are kind of long memos from the ministries to their bosses, uh, their ministers telling them what the pressing issues are and their areas of responsibility and so on in the budgets. And the one for the broadcasting minister has a bit of a strong start. It says... This is a pivotal time for defining the future of the media. As Minister, you can shape the government's role in supporting the media sector to recover from COVID-19 and identify long-term solutions to the fundamental challenges facing the sector. It goes on to talk about transformative change, the need for ambitious policy reforms and so on. Um, yeah, so so quite a bit in there. And what did the briefings to the incoming minister Reveal. Well, after that strong start, not so much. That's the disappointing thing. Um, I mean, it does show, interestingly, there's a, there's a table in there of all the amount sums of money that go to all the different agencies, New Zealand on air, um, RNZ, and smaller concerns like the Broadcasting Standards Authority. All the money being spent on public media is rising. So New Zealand on air's budget now up to $180 million. RNZ's up around the $42 million mark. Uh, and if you consider Māori Television, Tamangai Paho, which are funded from other sources, I think we're getting close to $300 million a year. Uh, on broadcasting, and if that doesn't take into account the COVID-specific stuff uh, they've done, like a, a package of measures announced back in April uh, to ease things for the media, some of which is still unclaimed, interestingly, according to the document. But, you know, the more interesting things, effectively, are, are the bits that really just aren't in it. Like what? Well, you know, the new public media entity to replace RNZ or, or and TVNZ and the planning for it, um, because this was announced back in February uh, by the minister, Chris Farfoy, saying there's going to be a business case. We want to take this to cabinet. As we now know in the last government, uh, Winston Peters and New Zealand First weren't too on board with that. But the government went into the election saying we want to do it. We want to create a new, modern, future-focused public broadcaster that's not split along the radio and TV lines. But, you know, we have this problem of two very different cultures, two very different organisations, highly commercial TVNZ and RNZ uh, in the public service, non-commercial. Uh, so there's nothing, unfortunately, in this document which shows how far along the line they are with this or what they're about to do. There's a couple of redacted sections, so possibly there's something in that. It does say that RNZ is going to get a letter of expectation in February 2021, um, which may have some clues or some details about what they're expected to do to prepare for this. And also the RNZ Charter is due for review in April. April, which is kind of a surprise in a way because it took uh, the government a hell of a long time to pass it. Uh, so it feels weird that it's up for review already. But possibly if RNZ's scope is to change, uh, maybe um, some clues in the review process for that. But it's always possible they'll just delay that as well. Was there anything in there about RNZ and its youth network? No. Well, that's the other disappointing thing. Nothing at all, unless I, I missed it. Um, because, uh, I mean, this is an issue that involves the ministry, and it involves RNZ, uh, and it involves the minister, all of them intimately connected in uh, this this project for the RNZ Youth Network, which, of course, as we know, fell apart because it involved uh, moving aside the frequencies for RNZ concert, huge political and uh, public backlash about that. So, you know, you'd think that that would be an issue, seeing as they've all got uh, responsibility for it, um, that they would want to be addressing this. But uh, there is a, a, a section on um, portfolio priorities, and it simply isn't mentioned there. So, yeah, that's a bit of a disappointment. Well, perhaps it comes down to money. 
Yeah, could do. Um, but, you know, money hasn't been the object, as I say. You know, the amount of money go- is going up. Uh, but RNZ still has to operate under a difficult budget. But, you know, everything you have to wonder if they're not making big decisions. I mean, of course, they went into the last election talking about $38 million for uh, public broadcasting to be mostly shunted in RNZ's direction and the possibility of a, a new TV or audiovisual channel. You know, that all fell apart. The new minister has come in. So he's got this plan. He wants this joint public media entity, but we just don't know the amounts of money behind it, whether they still wanted to exist off the TVNZ's ability to attract TV commercials and other commercial sources of revenue, we just don't know. So I think we need some details on this soon, and they certainly aren't in the briefing to the incoming minister. And Colin, last time we were speaking, we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, the newsroom documentary Oranga Tamariki, The New Wave of Trauma. You got an update on that? Yeah, this is a bit of a media freedom issue here, really. So what happened was... Uh, a week before last, this documentary came out on the newsroom.co.nz website by Melanie Reid. And of course, in June last year, uh, she really blew open the Oranga Tamariki issue uh, and the uplifting of this was uh, newborn babies in her first video, mostly from Mari Fano. And that triggered a wave of condemnation and concern about the practice. No fewer than five inquiries uh, put into place, and not all of those have even reported back yet. But at the time, Oranga Tamariki complained about significant misrepresentation. So so as a follow-up to this, the, the reverse uplifts, which is you know older kids being taken away uh, from their homes, but very much part of the same story and about how Oranga Tamariki operates, uh, this doco from Melanie Reid went online and Newsroom was forced to take it down by a court order uh, that said, uh, you know, you can't broadcast this because it might um, identify the child. Was that the main objection? Well, that's, that's the main one. I mean, the, the Family Court Act does forbid publication of... Um, of information about family court proceedings and the media have always had to go for permission to report pretty much anything from a family court case beyond the very, very basics. And if you identify uh, someone who's the subject of those proceedings or other people associated with it, you know, that that is effectively against the law. Um, but newsrooms say, look, they work pretty hard to avoid that, you know, being pretty circumspect in this, in this documentary with things like disguising people's identities and so on. And they even argued about this with the, the Crown solicitor, uh, gave, them, gave them a call. Uh, Solicitor General, in fact, um, but uh, no, the the um, they, they didn't didn't budge, and there was a a, a, um, a notice to take it down. And newsrooms say they find this a bit ironic because the without notice aspect of this, the sort of immediacy, said mirrors um, you know Melanie Reed's documentaries from last year about the uplift of the baby, saying that was without notice uh, moves from the family court to win orders to remove kids from their parents. So mm, yeah, they found an irony there. Do you think newsroom did play fast and loose with privacy? Well, that's the interesting thing. I mean, they insist not. In fact, they're adamant that they're very careful about it. But we can't tell because the documentary isn't there. Uh, It's been taken down with that court order. But, I mean, Oranga Tamariki and its supporters have always said privacy is an issue for them too because they can't talk about how they operate, can't defend themselves in some instances because they can't talk about the cases they work with. And yet, Oranga Tamariki does occasionally allow journalists to kind of ride along. And there was a Sunday Star Times story just a couple of weekends ago all about that, an 11-year-old boy removed from a dis- uh, dysfunctional uh, Pacifica family, um, you know, you would say, well, there's a bit of detail there about that case. So, you know, if you're, if you're a newsroom supporter or a media freedom advocate, you'd be saying, well, is there a bit of, bit of a double standard with the Family Court Act being applied in this way? What happened in court on Monday? 
Well, the Crown, they restated their positions basically. So the Crown said, um, you know, this was not to protect Oranga Tamariki at a time of controversy when its boss is under pressure. They said there was a mosaic effect. So individual pieces of information that people looking at the doco could piece together, things like even children's toys um, and things like that. Images in the background might lead to identification, hair length, uh, genders, voices, all these sorts of things. But um, the Crown's, uh, the newsroom's lawyers said, Look, if you take all this to its logical conclusion, this would prevent even positive stories about the agency and the family court system from being published. And that's not in the public interest, they said. So Justice Cook has reserved the decision on this, so uh, we'll have to wait and see. But one other interesting thing, only Newsroom itself appears to have reported on this, uh, and it's pretty extraordinary for a doco to be struck out by a court order like this. Uh, not much evident interest from the rest of the media about you know, what could be a precedent-setting uh, media freedom issue. Okay, uh, when I was talking to Hayden Donnell last week, uh, we got a bit confused about what story Steinlager featured in. I know entirely what it is now because I've seen the ad. Oh, you've seen it, yeah. Yes, a lot of times. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, at the time it came up, we were thinking, this is kind of weird, linking a a major anti-nuclear protest in the 1990s with a big beer brand. It's a big budget ad by uh, director Lee Tamihori, who, of course, did Once Were Warriors and has gone and directed stuff in Hollywood and so on. It's got Fleetwood Mac soundtrack, Go Your Own Way, but it's all based on the experiences of a couple of people who took part in that 1995 uh, flotilla to Mororoa. Um, and it got a big push on the project on three from Jesse Mulligan last week, and that followed an item all about the, the real people who banded together to take that protest to the French 25 years ago. Hard to imagine what issue would get that same group of people, lawyers and, and national voters and kids from a West Coast school all singing from the same songbook huh. again. Mm. Like to me, it should probably be the climate emergency that we're living in the middle of. Hard to and yet, pinpoint the villain there, isn't it? I guess so, yeah. Which direction do we sail yeah. the ships in? Mm. But uh, Well, to celebrate 25 years since that peace flotilla, uh, the brand Steinlager have got together with Kiwi filmmaker Lee Tamahori and they've teamed up to retell this chapter of New Zealand history, and you can watch that clip from Sunday night here on 3, uh, or you can see it on the Steinlager Facebook page. Mm, so you, don't, you don't often see an ad kind of pumped up in a news or current affairs show like that, but uh, the ad was also um, featured in, in a long story um, in the New Zealand Herald as well. And the obvious question, what has Steinlager got to do with the Miraroa protests? <laughs> yeah, it's the obvious question, and it's a good one too. Um, if you listen to the marketers, uh, well, the um, the senior brand manager for Steinlager told the uh, ad and marketing uh, industry news website Stock Press, it's a great example of New Zealand's character. He said, we landed on New Zealand's finest as a way of capturing both the essence of the brand of Steinlager and the feeling we want to champion. And the creative officer for the ad agency, which is DDB, uh, said that Steinlager had given them the ambitious brief of uniting New, Ze- New Zealand in pride. And uh, he said, we had to ask ourselves big questions about what it, take, uh, what it means to be a Kiwi in these increasingly fractured times we live in. And he said, uh, we chose Go Your Own Way as the soundtrack because if you ask Kiwis to pinpoint moments we're most proud of, they crystallise in these moments of defiance on the world stage. Um, in which case, I would have thought it's a bit weird. They could have chosen some authentically um, Kiwi music for their um, nuclear testing. And another irony that stands out to me is if they're trying to leverage uh, patriotism and a standalone Kiwi spirit uh, for selling the beer, um, Steinlager's part of Lion, and that's been owned by the Japanese mega-brewers Kirin for 
quite a long time. So <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's a, it's a wholly Kiwi beer, although it's, um, it's definitely kind of New Zealand brand. And I guess another kind of weird irony that just occurs to me is, you know, Japan have their own feelings about nuclear weapons as well, of course, don't they, with their history. So I don't know. It's a bit weird. To me, it seems like a, a, a bit of a weird way to leverage the patriotism. It's oddly cutesy as well. Mm. The ad itself. It is. Any, anyone unhappy about a movement for peace being co-opted to sell beer? Yep. Uh, peace movement Aotearoa has formally complained to the Advertising Standards Authority of what they say is a misrepresentation of history. Um, a couple of academics, Rebecca H. Hogan, Sylvia Frain, have written for the spin-off under the headline, This Steinlager ad distorts the truth about anti-nuclear protest. They say, for one thing, it ignores tireless campaigning by Pacifica and Māori that it went on well before uh, 1995, but you can't do everything in one ad. But they also say, look, the confrontation that happened with Rainbow Warrior 2 uh, went there because it was almost 10 years after the sinking of Rainbow Warrior 1, and that where the ad doesn't depict any kind of confrontation, you know, we know, and in fact, um, RNZ's old news boss, Don Rood, and other journalists were on board the boat, I think, when it was it was seized and, um, and stormed by French um, commandos. Um, and they say also that the ad had ad makers had claimed that the, it was the Kiwi Fitzdollar in 1995 that stopped the test dead, where in fact they went on for another year and it was um, European allies of the French who leaned on them and um, the development of computerised technology and so on that means you don't actually need to do that testing and that's the real reason. So they think they've messed with the truth to uh, create a better story. And indeed one of the guys who went to Mororo, that's Thomas Everth, he jumped on Facebook on the Peace Movement Aotearoa's Facebook page and said um, to Steinlager, I'm angered that you abuse what was an important political effort for a cheap beer ad. I'm not letting you abuse the sacrifice and hard work of the hundreds of people who sailed thousands of miles to make our voices heard for selling something that's addictive, causes death, and he challenges uh, Steinlager to donate a million dollars to health and recovery charities. Gee, any other news value in this advert? Well, no, I just don't think there is any, and I can't quite see why media would kind of give them the free publicity. But one uh, in the Herald, um, their media reporter, Damien Venuto, uh, did sort of look at what's behind this, why this, this, as you said, it's a bit emotional, a bit sentimental. Like cutesy was or the cutesy word Or cutesy was the word you used, yeah, but it's why this play on our feelings. And uh, a consumer insights agency, TRA, their partner, Colleen Ryan, said we should steal ourselves. She said there's a huge pent-up demand for freedom this year. Nothing captures the idea of freedom quite like a beer while you're on holiday and she said nostalgia is another emotional string marketers will be pulling this year uh, reminding Kiwis that we're fortunate enough to enjoy the simple things she says what you're likely to see in beer advertising this year is nostalgia on steroids they're really going to uh, turn up the dial on that emotion so be prepared for emotional beer commercials in 2020. Do you want to make a sound effect to that? <laughs> no, I'm sure the ad, ad industry will do that for me, and it should be 2021, of course. We're almost out of 2020, thank goodness. Yeah, just pass the bucket. Okay, and this is our last program for the year. Any last thoughts? Well, I did I did look, start, I think I'll try and review these year in review because it's been such an extraordinary yeah, there may be some extraordinarily good reviews of the you know 2020 year of COVID, but as I started reading them, I just couldn't. Some of them are horribly overwritten. I couldn't find any good ones, but I found some some bad ones. There's one called um, "Has a Year of Living with COVID-19 Rewired Our Brains." This was in the Guardian, a really long one, and it's full of these experts who are trying to bring out their kind of big zinger, profound quotes, and just picking on one of them. 
Um, for example, she was an expert in um, sociolinguistics or something. She says, we are all becoming a sort of non-person. Masks render us almost faceless. You know, hand sanitizer is a physical screen. We see it like a barrier, not speaking like somebody's language. Um, and another person says, um, you know, we're all wearing non-person clothes of pajamas and tracksuits. Somehow the repeat wearing of clothes makes all clothing feel like fatigues. They suit our weariness. And it's just, oh, God, it just goes on and on like this. And uh, I just just couldn't get to the end of it. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you know, all these end-of-year reviews, they're a bit like end-of-days ones. And there is an opportunity, I think, to sort sort of um, the wood from the trees in these pieces. But I had trouble, real trouble finding any. Well, to be fair, it is a little more difficult in that part of the world. Yeah. More pyjama wearing. More pyjama. There's one brilliant one, though, that was, I do recommend it's UK National Geographic, and he interviewed the British kind of preppers, and they weren't like the American ones with arms and all that. They were people who saw Brexit coming and thought, we're going to run out of food and things like that. And so they did it in a non-sort of survivalist way. And they're all now saying, I told you so, including one woman who laid in dental cement because she was sure she was going to have toothache and uh, actually used it during lockdown. So, yeah, nice one there in the UK National Geographic. Very good, Colin. Well, that's our last midweek media watch for the year. So thank you so much for uh, all of your input. No, no worries. We'll be back in 2021, maybe with uh, all the stuff you missed in summer while you weren't paying attention to the news. <laughs> I'm actually working. Oh, you are. Of course you are. I meant the audience. I mean, the audience oh, right. won't be paying attention. I was speaking to them. All right. We'll see you on the other side. Sure thing. Thanks a lot, Karen. It's been great fun.